You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. You know, every now and then I read a book about investing that totally inspires me. I mean, back in, I don't know, 2000, I read this series of books by Jack Schwager uh, called Stock Market Wizards, Market Wizards, and there was one other book that he wrote that really inspired me to get into the investing business. And I started getting obsessed and reading everything I could about investing. Just now, David Rubenstein, who's the head of the Carlyle Group, one of the biggest investment funds out there. They, David Rubenstein, through the Carlyle Group, manages $350 billion. He came out with a book, How to Invest, and he interviews some of the best investors of all time, like everybody from real estate investor Sam Zell, Mark Andreessen, Ray Dalio, Seth Klarman, a bunch of crypto guys. He interviews people in every category of investing, whether it's value investing, real estate investing, distressed debt investing, crypto investing, growth investing. And he summarized them all in this book, How to Invest Masters on the Craft. And so I always want to learn more about how to invest. You want to learn more about how to invest because it affects every area of your life, including what's going on in the world from a macro point of view. And David Rubenstein, he comes on the podcast. He doesn't hold back. We talk about everything from the investors in the book, how to invest to what the heck is going on right now with the world. Like, are we going to survive? And so here it is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. David, first off, so much fascinating information. You talked to some of the world's greatest investors ever and learned how they do what they do. But I wanted to start off, rather than ask you about investing, I wanted to ask you about your interview style. Like when you go into these interviews, obviously you do a lot of research, you know what they do, you know what their best investments are and so on. What do you actually learn? If you know too much, there's it's hard to learn new things. Like how do you do the interview so that even though you know so much about the people, there's room for you to learn? Well, I try to read as much as possible, but I find that people don't often talk about their childhood or their early failures as much in previous interviews as I like to often get into. So there's always uh, something that people will talk about I haven't read about before. And then, um, you know, I always try to listen to what they're saying and take the interview in the direction that they seem to want to take it. But, you know, there's no doubt that now, just as you've read about me, I've read about them. Um, a lot of the stuff is things I probably, you know, knew they were probably going to say, but hopefully they'll say it in a more interesting way. 
you're also one of the world's greatest investors, whether you would acknowledge that or, or not. And which of these investors that you interviewed struck you as most different from yourself and the people you usually work with? Well, there are many different types of investors, but I'd say Jim Simons is a quant, and I'm not really good in math, so I couldn't understand how he did what he did. So he's very different in many ways. He's also a inveterate cigarette smoker and uh, never wears socks, so that's a different style than maybe mine. Stan Druckenmiller is a person who likes to change his mind a lot. He he comes up with ideas, but he says he changes his mind every day about something, and he's willing to take off a trade that he might have already put on just the day before. Many of these people are very smart, for sure. They're self-assured, highly confident. They're willing to admit mistakes. They um, will trade out of an issue that's not working out well uh, relatively quickly. I'd say they're philanthropic. They're generally, their most important common characteristic is they're willing to go against conventional wisdom, and they don't care about what other people think so much. You know, I, one thing that struck me also, though, as a common characteristic was uh, obsession. Like what, what? Like they're obsessed with what they do. If they could do it twenty four seven, they they would. And they've been doing that in some cases since they were like five years old. Right. And what what do you think is the role of obsession in general for getting better at something? Uh, and the reason is it feels like when you're obsessed, it's almost like your learning curve is is exponential as opposed to linear because you're able to absorb yeah. and connect so much information. Well, if you were to um, talk to the leading people in any area, they were all obsessed. The tennis players, the basketball players, the the uh, biologists, anybody that really risen to the top of any profession will be obsessed because it takes a lot of time to really develop the skill set needed to get to the top of a profession. So these investors are obsessed with investing. And as I like to point out, they don't need to make any more money. They've all got more money than they could possibly spend or even given away in a lifetime, practically. But they love what they're doing, so it's not work for them. Do you think that's the case with you as well? Were you obsessed with investing? Because in a lot of your writings, it doesn't come across, you were obsessed with, it seems like you were more obsessed with the building of the Carlyle Group right. as opposed to the actual investing. Yeah, I, I would, as I say in the book, I'm not an investor, for, a professional investor. I didn't get off business school. I don't really have a math facility that the investors in my firm do. So I was really the person who said, I'm going to build Carlyle into a global firm. And my partners who really knew more about investing, they would oversee the investments. And so you're correct. I was more obsessed in building with building the firm and making it global than I was with actual day-to-day investments. And you know, a lot of the investors in the in the book talk about the role of luck. You know, you need some degree of luck to succeed. But the flip side is every investor commented somewhat about risk, that managing risk is almost more important than coming up with a good idea. And it, it feels like Managing risk and a focus on that is, is a way to counteract the effects of luck. So you could have bad luck, but over the long run, managing risk will will kind of create good luck. Well, sure. Look, um, everybody uh, thinks that when they make an investment, it's going to be great. But the really good investors recognize that they're going to make some mistakes. And so they're willing to protect their downside a bit. And in terms of risk, uh, a lot of these people are when they see things are going against them, they get out of it. Um, in my case, I tend to obsess over mistakes I made. And Maybe we'll think about it for 20 years or so. These guys get out of a mistake they made and they go on the next thing. They don't think about the mistakes that they made. Yeah. Do you think that you think that's difficult? Like, what do you think psychologically separates them from you in that sense? Uh, well, they have more self-confidence in what they're doing than I probably I do. Um, I have self-confidence in certain areas, but probably not as an investor. More self-confidence in, you know, let's say writing a book than I would in in in, in being an investor. But 
uh, having a great, like somebody has said uh, in, in the book, Stan Druckenmiller talked to George Soros about a risky investment they were doing. And Soros said, okay, I don't mind doubling down. And uh, Druckenmiller said, well, you could lose it all. And he said, that's okay. I can make it back tomorrow. So that shows an enormous self-confidence. Soros thinking he can make back a fortune if he lost his fortune. That takes uh, a lot of uh, you know, self-confidence to feel that way. And a lot of the great investors feel that way. Well, but let's look at that specific example. So that was specifically the famous right. bet against the British pound, which you know worked out so successfully. And initially, uh, Druckenmiller uh, had invested a billion of the $7 billion fund that Soros was managing, but it, and he felt there was a half a percent downside, 20% upside. So it was a very asymmetric kind of bet. So he took it up to 100% of the firm, and so he mentioned Soros was disappointed and told him to take it up to 200%. So then the risk profile is the firm, could, the funds could only lose, let's say, um, you know, one percent of its value, but it has significant, you know, upside, forty percent right. upside. So it doesn't seem like it was that much. It's not like investing in a a, a tech stock and putting two hundred percent in a tech stock in nineteen ninety nine. It it had you know he, they were very confident in the asymmetric returns of it. Well, yes, but also there's reputational risk. So let's suppose he made a big investment, everybody knew about it, and then it worked out the wrong way. Would his investors say, "Well, I'm going to stay with him," or they say, "Maybe I'm going to pull the money out"? Maybe new investors wouldn't be attracted. So it's not just the trade itself, but the reputational risk associated with a, a famous loss. Right, but at that point, Soros already was a a billionaire. Right. And was right. had even moved on to philanthropic activities, and from Drunkenmiller's point of view, he could say, you know, he could spread blame if he needed to start a new fund, <laughs> and so That's they true. had career risk that they were managing as well, both of them. When you think about it, the amazing thing about how is how small the size of the gain was compared to what we consider significant today. So they made roughly a billion dollars in breaking the uh, the pound today. A billion dollars wouldn't seem like a big deal one way or the other compared to what John Paulson did when he made twenty billion dollars. But think about this. When long-term credit uh, basically went under, uh, I think it was 1987 or eight or so, it was a billion-dollar loss. So the street was obsessed with and the, and the Treasury was obsessed with a billion-dollar trading loss. Today, you wouldn't even notice that. Right. And it's funny how that event triggered uh, first off there was tons of books about it at that time it was like such an amazing loss you're right about the reputational risk although john merriweather ended up starting two more funds after that i believe people did, survive but he never came back to the power he once had in wall street yeah and i guess i guess career risk is is very important in these decisions as well as investment risk but maybe like a guy again like in the george soros situation he could bear more risk because he had already had a uh, at that point like a 25 year successful he did, career but uh but also nobody wants to hurt their reputation and yeah that enormous self-confidence you know when i started practicing law the head of the firm came in and said all you have with your in your life is your reputation and uh don't do anything to destroy it and so people all they carry around with them really is their reputation and people are really conscious of preserving their reputation to the extent they can well, and then there's an, the interesting story. You, you talked to Ray Dalio, and he started his firm, I think, in um, 79, and then or se a little earlier. And then 1982, he made essentially the wrong bet against what the Federal Reserve would do as countries started defaulting on their debt to the U.S. Right. And he lost everything, personally and, and professionally. How do you think a lot of these guys who did suffer early failures 
was it just self-confidence or what other skills were required to to bounce back well of course if you lose everything and you have self-confidence in your abilities you think you're reasonably smart you'll try it again or try something slightly different but many of these people have lost large fortunes as well and also um you know suffered failures in their professional career and generally the people who are most successful in life have people who have failed in something or another uh you know steve jobs got kicked out of his firm he was out of his firm for 12 years then he came back and made apple the you know the most powerful company in the world um, this happens all the time it seemed like you have hedged your professional risk by always bringing on high quality people in every area right from the beginning well, I don't think I'm a great investor, qual investor. So I've tried to recruit people around me that really know what they're doing. And so I have done a lot of recruiting and tried to bring in some really talented people and some people going on to other things. Jay Powell left us. He became chairman of the Fed. Glenn Youngkin left us, now governor of Virginia. Uh, George W. Bush was on one of our boards and uh, he later became president of the United States. So you never know uh, what's going to happen with people you recruit. Yeah. So obviously a lot of talented people were, were on your team while you were growing. And uh, if you were to, given all the people you spoke with, plus all the exp massive experience you have, if you were to start now an investing career, like you're straight out of business school or straight out of working at some, some, on some desk at some bank, what asset class would most intrigue you right now? Well, the things I think are going to boom, I think, are blockchain and crypto and, and fintech-related kinds of things as the world moves more in that direction. I think biotech and things associated with uh, CRISPR and other kinds of um, bio biotech-related uh, um, new inventions. I think quantum uh, computing will ultimately turn out to be a great area as well. Um, but I probably would do more in the venture capital and growth capital area. When I started Carlisle, we became more or less a buyout firm initially, then we diversified. But uh, buyouts are a tough business these days. There's so much competition. Yeah, and I, that's been the case probably for, for quite some time. Although, as many of the investors in your book suggested, when there's times like the financial crisis or the COVID uh, crisis, opportunities happen. Like, you know, firms right. that were bought out uh, default on their debt and... There's opportunities to, right. to well, buy cheap. Yeah. So look, when there's dislocation, there's always going to be opportunities because when people are afraid of the upside, thinking that it's gotten to be too frothy or afraid of the downside because they think things are going to go under, that's where you see opportunities. People make your greatest amount of money when there is everybody, when everybody thinks that it's a, not the good time to invest. So when things are low and depressed, that's where you can make a lot of money. In the last great recession, the 2007, 2008, a lot of people bought their own distressed debt at a discount. They knew the companies well, and that distressed debt went up nine times or 10 times. People made a lot of money on it, even though people were generally afraid to invest then. So I was going to ask you specifically about distressed debt versus versus okay. buyouts. It seems like distressed debt, and, and we can explain what that means in, in a second, seems like distressed debt with, with good analysis of the, the real assets underneath that debt seems like in some ways the safest way to invest. Like on the one hand, you mentioned biotech earlier and investing in companies that do CRISPR and, and so on. We ultimately don't, even though that's an industry that's growing at roughly 2X to 4X every 18 months has its own Moore's law, we don't know what the final winner technology will be. And it, it, it's so growth investing could be very difficult because it's very difficult to predict even if you have that exponential growth. Whereas to stress that, I could say, oh, I'm buying... For 10 cents on the dollar, 
you know, the entire phone network of the government, as, as in the right. case with WorldCon's distress debt, for instance? Well, of course, um, if everything was so easy, everybody would do the things that are easy. And you know, this distress debt is challenging. It's not that well known, as you suggest, but basically it's buying the debt of buyout firms where the company hasn't done as well and the debt is trading at less than par. And you're either going to have a bankruptcy, in which case you'll get equity in the revised company, or you'll buy uh, the debt and it'll go up in value and you'll get your money back with a profit. Uh, Bruce Karsh, who I interviewed for the book, is one of the masters of that. Um, and he would say he's probably averaged, uh, I would say, rates of return close to 20% over some 25 years or so. So it's obviously um, not the easiest thing in the world to do, or everybody would be doing it, but he's done quite well at it. And how could, like, for, for a lot of these uh, investment categories, buyout investing being one of them, distressed debt being another, uh, how could the average investor kind of piggyback some of these ideas or, or, or get into that, into investing in distressed debt? Look, their average person, they can invest in funds, depending on how much money they have. If you have $100,000, you're probably not going to get in a great distressed debt fund or a great venture fund, but you can get into some of these funds by going through registered investment advisors who might have them on their platform. But as a general rule of thumb, you know, if you if you look at the best funds out there, they're always going to be raising money at some point. You can probably get into them, but they generally have minimums that might be somewhere from one to five million dollars or something like that. Um, if you're interested in lot, not so much risk, but just good mon money managers, you can obviously invest with Vanguard or Fidelity or T. Rowe Price in some of their um, mutual funds or their cash funds or their fixed income funds. And their fees are relatively modest in some of those uh, examples. You know, it's interesting though, because you talk to so many investors who do things other than just straight buying stocks. I mean, there's a there's a few investors that you talk to, like Ron Barron is an example, who who's right. just a, a straight, you know, fund investor. And then you talk to, you know, some value investors and so on. But most of the categories are not stocks. And it seems like stocks, if I were to take an extreme point of view, public companies are almost like a scam. Like by the time, you know, the VCs you know, enter early, fund, 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 subsidize all the marketing, subsidize all the initial, you know, getting the initial customers. And then when they, when it's too expensive to keep subsidizing this company, they throw it to the the dumb money, which is they take it public. And, and why, what's the argument? Well, to invest I mean, in a stocks? lot of companies that have gone public have done quite well as public companies. Apple, if you invested Apple at the beginning, you do quite well or Microsoft. So I don't think it's quite fair to say it's a scam. It's clear that um, that there is risk associated with buying public company uh, stocks, but there's risk in anything in life. I, I would say generally over the last 100 years or so, the S&P 500 or the S&P index or the stock market index has probably averaged rates of return of about 6% or so. So if you just bought a market index over the last 100 years or so, or if you buy one for the next 10 years or so, you're probably going to average 5 to 6 or 7%, uh, not adjusted for inflation. So um, it's not terrible, but it's not you know great either. If you want higher rates of return, you've got to do something a little more risky and a little more exotic. Yeah, and so I'm curious, like particularly with some of these stock investors that you in interviewed, what if someone like let's say you took just Ron Barron, Seth Klarman, and maybe right. another a bunch of other high profile investors. You could even take Renaissance. Renaissance has some long term holdings right. in, in some of their funds, and they all file 13F filings every quarter. What if an investor simply said, oh, okay, these are the new stocks Renaissance bought that Seth Klarman bought, that Ron Barron bought, and, and so on. I'm just going to invest in these yes. and piggyback these guys. And this way I don't have to pay their exorbitant fees when I, by investing in their funds. 
Um, well, a 13S, for people who may not know, is a document that you have to file with the SEC that when you have, I think, more than 5% of a, a company's a stock in your portfolio, um, you can do that. But sometimes people don't file 13Ss because they might not own that much of a stock. And secondly, uh, it, when they when they sell, you, you're not going to know for a couple months later that they've sold. So it's not an impossible strategy to pursue, but it does have the risk that you're not going to know when they change their mind. That's true, but you take a guy like Seth Klarman, for instance, who's he's a long, very long term investor. Like he'll he'll, right. as he mentions in his the interview with you, he he he'll usually own he own like a few stocks because that's all you need in your portfolio. And he's in he's done so much research and he's in for the long term. There's some investors where you could hedge that potential risk that they could sell by by researching whether they're very long term or not. Yes, but one of the advantages of investing with the, the funds, even though you pay the fees and the carries, is that you know you're parallel to these great investors and you know that they have up-to-date up -date information that they're going to use to make the investments better, presumably, as opposed to trying to do what you're suggesting. What you're suggesting is not impossible, but you're really, you're really, you're doing it to forego the fees. And, you know, in life, generally you get what you pay for. Right. Okay. That's a good point. And then on the flip side, I'm curious about, you know, the, you know, David Swenson once, the, the, Yale endowment manager. I, I don't know if he's still there or not. He once wrote a book uh, on he's, investing. Yes, he passed away last year. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I didn't know that. And he wrote a book uh, many years ago about his approach to investing. And even though he invested in buyout firms, he said something very interesting in the book, which is that the uh, investing in buyouts is essentially going to be like investing in the S&P 500 with a little bit of leverage. Because usually buyout firms... Do their best periods is when they're exiting during hype, you know, when the stock market's right. going up. And so you're still going to get the same returns as, as if you had invested in the S&P 500, but again, using the leverage that buyout firms use. Well, that was his theory, and uh, but he did invest in buyout funds. He, his theory was to invest with people who he could have more influence with, and so he would maybe get discounted fees. He didn't really like paying fees or carried interest. Uh, for the average investor who may not be David Swenson, have access to markets or good people like David Swenson did, I think when you pay the fees and the carries, you know, it does eat into the returns, but you can probably rest assured at night that you've got a lot of people working on your behalf whose money is investing alongside yours. So I understand David's uh, point of view, and it's not ridiculous, but it's not easy for everybody to be David Swenson to do what he did. Like, how important do you think is the psychological component of investing? Because it's difficult for anybody to do any of the things these people do. That's why they're they're the greatest. And you mentioned Apple earlier. Yeah, you could have bought Apple at the IPO, and now it's a two or three trillion dollar company. But there was this period in 1997 where, I mean, the stock went down to three dollars. I don't know what the market cap was, but maybe less than a billion at that right. point. And Michael Dell even famously said, "Oh, they should just shut down now." Well, there's no doubt that uh, these companies have their ups and downs for sure. T take Microsoft. Microsoft well, didn't really move very much when Steve Ballmer was the uh, CEO. And for about, and I think when he left, the company was around $28 a share. It's now up by 13, 14, 15 times that. And, uh, you know, if you'd held on, you'd be okay. But a lot of people didn't hold on for that long a period of time. So it depends on what your perspective is. Some people hold on forever, like Warren Buffett, more or less. Um, and, um, you know, if, if you, you want to avoid transaction costs and capital gains taxes, you know, if you hold on forever, you're probably better off. And, and, you know, you mentioned Microsoft's up 13 or 14x. A lot of that is a function of the times that these guys were CEOs and then what happened since then. Like you look at 
post-COVID or post-March 2020, how much of the rise in the stock market was due to the fact that we have really great companies that were undervalued or that there was just so much increase in money supply and, and weakening of the dollar that the stock market price in dollars increased accordingly? Probably the latter, in my view. I mean, it was, uh, you know, COVID was a period where people didn't really know what was going to go on and we were changing the way people come to work and deal with work and so forth. But a lot of companies did quite well. If you look at the stock market averages during that period of time, you wouldn't know that we were in a pandemic. Yeah, right. And and what do you attribute that to? Well, when the federal government is giving away money in the form of uh, um, low interest rate kind of loans, or they're, they're, the federal government is pouring money into the economy in terms of spending, you're probably going to see the stock market rise. There's no doubt about it. That usually happens. So it was an unusual period of time where the government of the United States was doing everything it could to kind of prop up the economy and prop up the stock market, and it worked. And, you know, let's compare it to now where, you know, some of the investors in your book and certainly many people are saying that times have now changed, that we've had this inflationary period since the early 80s, and and now we're going to enter in a deflationary period, and and all asset classes will will essentially suffer, or most asset classes will suffer as a result. But I feel like that's the same thing people were saying in 2008, you know, 2000. Right. You know, well, remember, very 80s. often, when you read, the people who are the greatest investors in the world generally don't go on TV and talk about whether it's a good time to buy or sell or what they're doing. Generally, they, they kind of do what they want to do, and they don't really telegraph what they're going to do. The people that often go on TV and talk about it's a good time to buy or not a good time to buy are often analysts or researchers who aren't not actually pulling a trigger on investments. Right. And so what do you think is going to happen? Well, now I believe that we are um, going to have to deal with inflation for a while. It's unlikely that returns will be anything close to what we had in the last couple of years because the environment is much more inflationary. The government has a lot more debt. And there's a lot of concern about whether we're going to go into a recession because of the high interest rates that we're now getting. So I would be more cautious uh, in the future than maybe a year or two ago. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting... And, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because 
side by side with the business summit was the Norway chess summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class, so I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You mentioned you worked with Powell, who's now the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Do you think the Federal Reserve actually knows what to do about inflation? <laughs> like, or, 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 yeah, like I have, I have a theory, and I'm curious what you think of it. That one of the best tools that the Federal Reserve has right now is is their mouths, and so when they say things publicly, like this might be an aggressive landing, right. uh, that itself brings down all asset classes. Just the words they use. And that removes money or perceived wealth from people's yeah. pockets. And so that might reduce inflation just without them even doing anything. Well, in the short term, it, whatever the Fed chairman says is going to have some impact, whether it, a week or two or three later, it, other things overtake it, you don't really know. But there's no doubt that in the old days, when I worked in the government and Paul Volcker was chairman of the Fed, you knew what the Fed did um, by kind of uh, obfuscation. You didn't, the Fed didn't tell you what it was going to do before it did it. And it, then after it did it, it didn't really tell you what it had done precisely. 
Now the Fed telegraphs exactly what it's going to do. Maybe that's a good thing. And after they do it, an hour after they do it, they tell you exactly what they did. Um, that gives people more information. Maybe that's better. And so what, what, I mean, I know this is, this is not, we're segueing a little bit from the book, but I, I am curious about your opinion on this. What are the techniques to reduce inflation? Because it seems like raising rates, they won't be able to raise rates enough to reduce significantly inflation. And they're not really reducing the money supply. They're just not increasing it anymore, supposedly. The, the best tool that the federal government has is to increase interest rates and to uh, modify the growth in federal spending. But that's not easy to do because federal spending keeps going up almost exponentially. And when you increase interest rates, it makes people unemployed as a historical fact. And also it's politically unpopular. But I think right now the Fed recognizes that its best tool, in addition to jawboning, as you suggest, uh, the economy um, is probably increasing interest rates to a level that will probably increase unemployment. The Fed is trying to do a so-called soft landing. That's not easy to do, which is to say increase interest rates so much so that people slow down economic activity, but doesn't lead to a recession. And so let's say you didn't do anything. How bad could it get in the sense that like, let, let's take the early eighties as an example. And Paul Volcker, who you brought up, you know, inflation was running in the high teens and he was raising interest rates to that, to that level. But let's say he had never done that. At some point, people just stop spending and inflation can't keep going up. Pe people start carpooling instead of taking long commutes to work. Look, uh, the Weimar Republic showed that uh, there's no limit to how high inflation can go if the government's credibility is is, is down to zero. Um, so I think our government is not going to have that kind of low credibility. But there's no doubt that increasing interest rates will have some impact on inflation, probably reducing it, maybe not as much as the Fed would like. But the trick is actually increasing it by such an amount such that economic activity slows down, but it doesn't go into a recession. And that's a trick. Nobody, there's no one way to do that for sure. Yeah. And like, and just to talk about your example with the Weimar Republic, they also were, and essentially the, the reparations they had to pay is as if they were borrowing money in a currency right. that wasn't marks. They had to pay back in pounds and, and whatever else. And so we're not in a situation oh, like that. You're because right. We don't have that problem, but we have uh, kind of the opposite problem. Because we have the only reserve currency and people have to buy our dollars, we have been able to borrow more money than we probably really can afford to, re -borrow, to borrow or should have been borrowing. And so as a result, we have the beneficiary of being this uh, incredible, uh, uh, have this incredible currency. If we, did, we were not the only reserve currency and people didn't have to buy dollars, it'd be much more expensive to, to sell this debt and probably we wouldn't have borrowed as much money. Right. But I mean, there was a time maybe right before COVID or, or right in the beginning of COVID where I think the Federal Reserve had a lot of confidence that we would be able to borrow every other country because we are the world's reserve currency. Right. There's no other currency people really want to take the risk on, particularly in a time like COVID. Everyone was just soaking up our dollars and they were more worried about deflation than inflation. That's right. Yes. For a long time, obviously, Japan is worried about deflation, hasn't solved that problem. And, and for a number of years, we were worried about deflation here as well. Um, that's not a worry right now. What are you, what do you worry about? Well, I, I'm, you know, I worry about everything, but uh, uh, in terms of the economy, I, I do worry about whether the Fed can engineer a so-called soft landing because right now the unemployment rate's roughly three and a half percent, which is a historic low essentially. And generally, um, the Fed recognizes that if you increase um, interest rates, you're going to increase unemployment. 
And how high can you increase unemployment without getting into a recession? That's the unknown question right now. Right. And at the same time, industrial production's up. Real wage growth, at least recently, has been up. I mean, there's a lot of good indicators happening in the economy that are hard to... Um, well, that's, you know, that's right. And that's why we're not technically in a recession. As you know, technically, one there are many definitions of recession. One is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. We've had two consecutive quarters of negative growth, but no economist say, says we're in a recession because we've had other good economic indicators, as you point out. You know, let's say the Fed has been doing, you know, they raised, I believe, 225 basis points so far. They might have to raise another 400 basis points for all we know. We just have no idea. And the actual effects on the economy usually take place 12 to 18 months after these rate hikes. So 12 to 18 months from now, what could be like a bad scenario? Well, it depends on a number of things. Tell me if the war in Ukraine is still on. Tell me who's in control of the Congress. Tell me who's, uh, you know, the next president of the United States, all those factors. Can't, can't know right now, but if the current president's there and the Congress is still controlled as it is now by the Democrats, the war in Ukraine is still on, I suspect we'll, we'll have um, you know, a fair amount of inflation for a while, and the Fed will have to increase interest rates by more than it probably would like to. And what's the ramifications of something like, you know, and I'm not talking about the, the fairness or unfairness, but the student loan forgiveness essentially injects about $500 billion into the economy, plus times whatever the velocity of that money is. What do you think? It's almost this fiscal spending done by Congress counteracts what the Federal Reserve is trying to do, or does it? I don't know. Uh, uh, well, sure. There's sometimes they're 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 counter, but look, what the federal government did during COVID was inject you know trillions of dollars into the economy, and that had an inflationary impact more than people thought at the time. But it was still thought it was a good idea to keep the economy from collapsing. On student loans, you know the unfairness of it is that if you just paid off your student loan, you're not going to get any benefit out of it. If you didn't pay off your student loan, you were negligent in doing it, or you couldn't afford to do it, you'll be you'll you'll benefit, right? But other than other than those specific beneficiaries, the the economy itself is is getting in, the the entire economy is getting injected with with that money. Right. So whether you're a direct beneficiary or an indirect beneficiary, right. you know, and many many people that think counteract will the be, Fed. It will be somewhat inflationary, not as inflationary as all the things that we've done in in the COVID period, but they obviously have some impact on inflation. Government of the United States can't keep running uh, trillion-dollar annual deficits and not have some inflationary impact. Yeah, it seems like that's almost like a a steamroller compared to what the the Fed can do when there's an extra when there's trillions and trillions of dollars that they're trying to soak out of the economy. You can't really soak it out. Look, the political pressure um, to reduce inflation is considerable, but people are not marching on Washington by hundreds of thousands or a million or so to get inflation down. People kind of accepted it to some extent. They're not happy with it. They're adjusting their lifestyles somewhat, but it's not yet the same um, kind of political issue as some of the other issues that are now dominating the headlines. Like what? Well, the democracy, the issue of democracy uh, is one that, you know, many people will think is uh, a more long-term issue and one that has to be dealt with, whether our democracy actually functions as opposed to inflationary inflation, which is more transitory issue. That That's not a great word to use. I mean, if you're like a, a country, uh, let's say a, a third world or developing country, and you're deciding whether to get help from America or from China, and you see, you know, democracy and capitalism maybe having having some issues right now, and and China's all confident and you know growing and 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 so on, who do you who do you side with? 
Well, I think uh, what they try to do is play one off against another and take a little bit from both and hedge their bets. So I, I think rarely now people say, I'll take all the money from the United States or or only take uh, you know gifts from uh, China because people don't know which way the, the geopolitical worlds are world's going to go. So they tend to take money from both. Do you think there's some risk in... Uh you know, Russia, China, and other countries doing deals on oil in currencies other than the dollar? Um, I do think there's some risk in that. Yeah, sure. Um, right now, um, and they are doing some deals outside of dollars, but, you know, Russia is obviously uh, not happy with the fact that the dollar is, a cent is the only reserve currency, and obviously China's not happy with it, but that right now they haven't been able to change that very much. Well, and if, they, if they're able to change that, or have some dent in that, that weakens the dollar, which again is, is inflationary. That's true. Um, but so far, it's not that easy to get around the use of the dollar. But but there's no doubt that uh, I suspect that, uh, the, of course, the Russians want to be paid in rubles, or that's not realistic, but maybe euros. Um, the RMB is not going to be a reserve currency anytime soon. It takes a long time to build something into a status, status where it can be a reserve currency. Maybe it takes five to 10 years. And the China China is not really pursuing that. I'm curious, you know, a lot of the investors you speak to in the book, either their styles are value investing in terms of stocks or the strategies themselves, there are a value approach. Like, you know, investing in real estate is essentially a value investing approach. Like there's a model for what real estate should be worth. And if it's going for higher, you sell. And if it's going for lower, you buy. It's a simplistic way of describing how a lot of these investors approach real estate or distressed debt or, or buyouts. But growth investing I'm going to make the pro case for that, which is like take biotech as an example. And again, you mentioned that earlier. That's an industry that's growing exponentially. Nothing's going to stop the science. And if you could just scatter your investments everywhere, you could have a tech-like scenario where if you had decided in 1970, I'm just going to invest in every single public tech firm that goes public, you probably would have made you know hundreds or thousands of percent even if most companies eventually went bankrupt. Right. And you know, like if all you needed to do was own Intel and Apple and you could have had 98 other failures and you would have made, you know, tens of thousands of percent. So why isn't that like just an amazing approach to invest in like biotech and automation and or solar power, any of these other exponentially growing uh, scientific industries? Well, of course, it's uh, easier to do indexes if you're going to do that. You can just buy a biotech index or a technology index. And that's a lot quicker and easier to do. But it's not a terrible strategy to say, I think the technology is going to boom and I'll just put my money in technology. That worked out quite well over the last 5, 10, 15 years. Do you really think it's going to happen again in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Nobody really knows. Yeah. Although, I mean, you just see, like, again, with this Moore's Law type approach, how did Gordon Moore know that tech was going to keep growing, you know, keep doubling every 18 months, or at least computer technology or semiconductor technology, it does seem like these industries follow this Moore's Law approach. And it's even getting faster because of using computers to do the research faster. Well, look, technology, the, the large U.S. technology companies had the advantage of not only uh, selling to the U.S. market, but they dominated the global technology market. Uh, it's, it, China has not developed a technology company that is as global as the U.S. companies like Apple or, or, or Facebook or Amazon or Google. China is the, has a number of companies that could have that potential, like ByteDance and Alibaba and Financial, but they are now, now that, that large outside of China, living aside TikTok in, uh, as part of ByteDance. But generally, 
um, Americans have been able to dominate the global technology space. And that's been great for America. Can we do it in the next 10 years or so? I don't know. I mean, this is somewhat related to immigration policy. Like if, if you have fewer Indian students and Asian students going to grad schools in, you know, America, you know, and a, a lot of these talent, a lot of talent from around the world end up starting the best or, or end up leading the biggest Silicon Valley companies. Does that start to hurt the, the American dream in terms of tech? Well, the American dream is a dream that many people who don't live in America believe in more than people that do live in and are born in America. And so for, for that reason, about a third of the companies in Silicon Valley are led by CEOs who are from India. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, we have large immigration from India, very intelligent people come in, they're doing great things for American economy. Whether that'll continue in the future, I don't know. It may be the case that we change the immigration laws. People in India who have technology and entrepreneurial skills may stay in India to build those companies. Yeah, I think that's kind of what's what's happening now. I mean, they have amazing, they have these, you know, the Indian Institute of Technology accepts, you know, it's it's a it's a system that's spread out throughout India, and they accept about one in ten thousand applicants, which is an amazing, you know, amazing low percentage oh. relative to US schools. And then often though they, those students go to grad schools here, and right. that's historically been the case. But I think that's on the decline now. And that, well, that's one issue. Uh, it's been harder for Chinese students to get out of China in in the last couple of years for COVID and other reasons. Um, so the percentage of students from China who are coming is less than it was before COVID. And so hopefully that reverses. But we'll see, I guess. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. In terms of your own investing prowess, how do you personally invest your money? Well, I am, uh, you know, a big investor in all the Carlisle funds, and I've done that from the beginning. And I'm a big investor in Carlisle, and I'm, you know, one of the biggest shareholders. Um, I have a family office called Declaration, and they do things that don't compete with Carlisle, and the deals have to be approved by Carlisle as not being in conflict. And in those areas, we do a lot of growth capital. Uh, I've done things that I. We don't do a Carlisle. Carlisle is not a big crypto investor or an industry of blockchain. So I've done a fair amount of that in, through my uh, family office. Yeah, let's talk about crypto for a second because a crypto now reminds me of, of course, the, the internet in roughly 2000, 2001, where you have this internet bust and suddenly many people who went into the internet as a speculation but didn't know that much about the technology kind of came to the conclusion that the internet was a fad and was going to 
end up disappearing. And I sort of see the same things happening with a lot of people in crypto. They're in for the speculation, but they don't really understand what's going right. on, whether anything is going on or not. Like, what do you see as the eventual use cases that could be game changing for crypto? Well, I just interviewed a man named Sam Bankman-Fried, who was obviously uh, a well-known figure in the crypto world, and he he um, started FTX. And I interviewed for my book, Mike Novogratz, who's been a big investor in in crypto. My my own view is that crypto is not going away. The people that support crypto and trading crypto tend to be very politically active. They tend to be young. They have a lot of influence in Congress. I think Congress is not going to unduly regulate uh, crypto, and I think therefore the industry will be allowed to grow. And in time, uh, not too long from now, the U.S. government will have its own digital currency. Well, that's not crypto. It does kind of confirm the idea that currencies that are just digital probably are the wave of the future. And and what about the role of of Ethereum in this? In the sense that, like Bitcoin is sometimes called a store of value. It's also considered the the leader of of the industry in the way that Amazon was considered the leader of e the e commerce industry. And these are often put forward as as arguments for Bitcoin success. Whereas Ethereum now has has more transactions per day actually than than Bitcoin and is is used to kind of create the the building blocks of the rest of the crypto no. ecosystem, particularly the DeFi exchanges, where unlike centralized exchanges like the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, essentially every anything of value can be traded for anything else of value 24-7. Like I could take my frequent flyer miles if they were crypto and trade them for a piece of your house or McDonald's shares. Look, that's the wave of the future. I mean, people can instantly sell what they want to sell and, and any time of the day. And I think that's probably the wave of the future. And I, I think that it's unrealistic to think you're going to wipe this out. Like China has said, we don't want people buying cryptocurrencies. So people are buying it in Hong Kong. They're buying it in, in, in offshore things other than Hong Kong. So I don't think you can eliminate an idea like this so easy or an industry that's now already grown to be so large. I don't think you can eliminate it overnight. And the people you've spoken to, what do they think are the uh, real-world use cases? Well, the people who are my generation or older tend to be very skeptical of crypto. People who are younger tend to be fairly uh, bullish on it. My own view is that uh, probably the, the Ukrainian uh, war has accelerated the interest in crypto because many Russian oligarchs had their assets taken. And now I think a lot of wealthy people around the world are probably saying, wait a second, this can happen to me. So I want to put some of my assets in something that's not traceable or stealable, or the government can't confiscate it so easily. So I think you're going to see more and more people buying into cryptocurrencies as a way to kind of shield their wealth from the government. Maybe even hedge against the U.S. dollar. If that, you know, like you mentioned, people are having are starting to lose faith a little bit, whether temporarily or long term, we don't know. But that uh, crypto and I guess gold would be hedges against that. But young people don't typically buy gold at at this point. Right. Um, you know, look, look. Great revolutions and great um, investment trends generally are not started by people in their 70s or 80s. They're usually started by people in their 20s or 30s. Uh, remember, the, the, the computer revolution was started by people in their 20s. The internet revolution by people in their 20s and 30s. And so uh, the fact that crypto has a lot of very young people and it doesn't mean that it's not likely to stay around. I think it's going to be there for quite some time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, throughout your book, there's a lot of examples of like great trades. So like we talked about Trunk uh, and Miller's bet against the pound. And you also interview Sam Zell, who's a fascinating investor and, and you know, entrepreneur. And at the, his, I remember it clearly the day he sold equity, EOP, equity office right. properties, because 
the, the housing market was peaking and a lot of people were wondering if it was peaking. And uh, he essentially called the, the top, although he denies having taken credit. He, he doesn't take credit for calling the top, but clearly he knew what he was doing. He had a model for how to value his real estate and he sold it when it was grossly uh, overvalued. And Blackstone bought it and then, again, as a way of kind of creating their own good luck, they sold off two-thirds of it instantly. And Zell mentioned how all the buyers from Black of, of the Blackstone properties then went out of business other than Blackstone. And, you know, it, there's very few great trades like that. Like, what do you think is a, is a more recent great trade that will go down in history? Well, I talk about in the book, uh, the John Paulson trade, where he basically bet against the mortgage market and the uh, subprime mortgage market, and he made for his, his investors and himself $20 billion. That's a probably pretty good trade. Yeah, no, and, and that, that's a great one. Greg Zuckerman even wrote, wrote a, a book about that trade. I visited John Paulson in, in 2006, and uh, they explained to me the whole trade and that their one worry was that the banks would go out of business so fast they wouldn't be able to get their money out. And so I got back to my office after that meeting and I called up a bunch of hedge funds that I knew. And they all said, and this is to your point, how you know the, the great investors go against what other people are thinking. All of these professional hedge fund managers were telling me, oh, that's uh, you know, that trade is already too crowded. Don't do that trade. It's it's so crowded, there'll be a short squeeze once it actually happens. But they were all wrong. And John Paulson made an enormous amount of money, but then was not able to continue that success when he tried uh uh essentially investing the proceeds into into gold well the gold investment hasn't turned out to be as successful as the mortgage investment there's no doubt but remember you know it's hard to have uh trades as good as the mortgage investment every day or every year so he's done quite well he's now managing his money in a family office setting and doesn't have to deal with outside investors and we don't really know how well he's doing now but i do know him and i they're very smart investors no doubt about it and, and but it, it reminds me of something you say in the book. One of the investors says, um, I actually forget which one, but that a very important quality an investor should have is kind of clarity of vision. Have a real long term vision about something, like 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 the way uh, sure. Larry Fink might have had about real estate or bond investing, or Mark Andreessen had about tech. And you know, part of having that long term vision, I guess, is experiencing things, and then part is is reading. And I just wonder, how does one kind of cultivate that that long-term vision and and so that you can have that self-confidence to ride through the the bad times? Well, I think uh, reading helps a lot. And a lot of the people in this book are people that love to read. And even if it's not directly related to investments, they just don't think you can absorb too much information. And so they're always reading, always learning, and that you never know which idea will come along and actually turn out to be a great investment idea. Um, you know, there's no doubt that people, when they get to the level we're talking about, the people in the book, they have a fair amount of self-confidence, and therefore they're not generally going to listen to what everybody says is the right thing to do. They'll have their own views, and uh, these are really, really smart people that have a ability to kind of uh, change on a dime if they have to. They're willing to change their mind. Drucker Miller, as you said in his interview, he doesn't give out investment advice to friends because he might change his mind the next day, and therefore doesn't want to feel obligated to call up his friend and say, "Guess what? I changed my mind." But you know, he, like, and he he used that to describe the difference between himself and and Buffett, for instance, who who might not change his mind as as frequently. But you mentioned earlier how a, a billion dollar fund or a billion dollar loss is is small change in the investment world these days. When you're managing like a trillion dollars in assets or hundreds of billions, 
it's hard to change your mind and get into a big position one day and get out a few weeks later. So I think the, it's the, hard. But uh, what what Druckenmiller is talking about, he's very often getting out of positions that uh, you know he's put in you know not a gigantic amount of his of his net worth, so he can get out of positions, and he's also using derivatives, which are sometimes easier to get out of. I guess because the well, right now to to buy and sell derivatives is mostly you know you have to call a very specialized broker who finds very specialized buyers. Do you ever see outside of what we were talking about earlier with crypto? Do you ever see a, a a world where a lot of these assets, whether it's distressed debt or these derivatives, are traded on an exchange? Nothing is impossible. So I I would say you can in effect do distressed debt investing online by buying um um you know the, the stock I guess of uh, of Oak Tree or similar friend of firms, but buying the assets directly on whether that's going to be tradable or not, I don't know. And, you know, I guess the, the, we, we spoke a little about risk, but one of the common themes of many of the interviews in your book is the, the phrase Seth Klarman used, margin of safety. This is the title of his, his early nineties book. And he mentions a chapter in, in Benjamin Graham's, you know, classic texts. And it seems like this is a critical thing. Even, you know, everybody analyzes what they're, what, and they could be wrong, but they may try to make sure they, they understand what the downside is and, and some awareness of what the upside is, and then build in some margin of safety before they actually take an investment. And I think this is very, what, what really separates a lot of these great investors from the average investor, or let's call the retail investor, which mo who mostly thinks of just what the upside potential is, rarely thinks of the, mar the margin of safety, you know, how important is that for your for your own investing, or how important did you see that in the in these investors? You know, obviously, it's um, when, if you go to Las Vegas and gamble and you win the first day, you're going to think you're a genius, and you're going to go back the second day and probably put it all back in, and you probably lose it all. Um, so, people who make good investment decisions similarly think sometimes they're geniuses, and they forget to worry about the margin of safety, and they put too much into something going up, and when it really there's some need to put something on, on, on the downside. So I think a lot of these good investors, they're willing to take big bets, but they protect their downside a fair bit. They can get out uh, in a reasonable period of time if they want to. Yeah, and, and with a buyout firm, like let's say Carlisle Group, how do you protect downside risk? Well, when you're doing a buyout, you're, you're, you're trying to do is um, uh, improve the value of the company. So you're spending a lot of time fixing the company and you, you can't uh, completely hedge that. Uh, and you have macroeconomic factors that move can move against you. So you might be a great company and you've bought it appropriately in a good price. Let's suppose the economy goes into recession and there's not much you can do about it. Um, so you can't completely hedge your, your situation. Buyout firms tend not to hedge very much. They tend to hedge a little bit when, let's suppose I've agreed to sell you a company, but it's not going to close for six months. So I could buy a hedge against the deal so that in six months, I, I, I know I'm going to get my price because I've hedged uh, the deal for, for the closing period of time. But as a general rule, buyout firms don't hedge their, their private equity investments. And, you know, the, the, another kind of risk you mentioned, though, is that like in, in the buyout space, there's so many buyout firms chasing every single deal that the, the, the prices become too overheated, you know, right. relative to where the value is. But that also happens in every part of the investing world, like take Jim Simons, managing whatever it is, like a hundred billion dollars or some huge amount. And there's thousands of tens of thousands of PhDs now all over Wall Street trying to build quant models, chasing right. after faster and faster trades. And it seems like almost every investing style gets too crowded, particularly by the time it reaches 
you know, the front pages of the Wall Street Journal. You've got to, you've got to change. You've got to modify. And if you just do the same thing over and over again, people are going to replicate it. And then they, they rate the, the outsized returns you thought you were going to get, you're not going to get. So in Jim Simon's case, when he was really beginning the quantitative investment style, uh, he, he had the market to himself. Now everybody seems to have a quant fund and everybody's also looking for the same kind of inefficiencies that he's looking for. Yeah, I wonder how he's able to keep up such good results, particularly as he's gotten larger. Well, um, he, he hires really, really smart people in math. Um, I, I think uh, his rates of return, I think I say in the book that for about 30 years or so, his rates of return on the medallion fund, the internal fund, is roughly 40% a year. Right, and then he corrected you and said it's much higher. <laughs> Yes, uh, that's correct. I mean, I originally I had written in the in the introduction to him his, his chapter that I think it was thirty percent a year for thirty uh, thirty years, and he uh, edited it and said it was forty percent. I think I've got it right. So, uh, you know, for all these guys, do they have? I mean, they mentioned some of them mentioned they have hobbies like golf and other things. But are there any kind of consistent, you know, consistencies in their outside investing life? No, they tend to have different, you know, sports. Some are golf. Some might be tennis. Uh, they all are really big now philanthropists. Obviously, when you have that much money, they tend to give it away. And many of them have, are in the art world as well as a kind of not philanthropy, but just a, uh, something they enjoy. But no, I wouldn't say there's one common thing. I think they all are most interested in preserving their health so they can live longer because uh, they've got a good life. Yeah, you know, I notice whenever I interview someone who's been very successful, particularly financially, they're concerned about two things. They think um, the United States is going to collapse, so they're worried about that because that prevents them from spending their dollars. And of course, uh, they heavily fund anti-aging research. Right. And so I noticed those two consistencies. Well, look, if you've got a good thing going, why do you want to give it up? So uh, right. everybody gets to be obsessed with, uh, with their age and their health. And, and there's no doubt that you can do some things to improve your health and maybe your longevity, but you can't completely solve that problem. Like you mentioned in the, I think it's the introduction, how Ronald Reagan, at the time when he became president, right. he thought it was so old. Now he's like a teenager compared to you now, and you're still actively, you know. Yes. Do you think people in general have, you know, I here, here's a great example. You ever watch the show Sanford and Son in the 70s? Yes, yes. So Red Fox in that show is 52 years old. And that's, I'm 54 right now. And I don't feel at all as old as, Red Fox looked in that well, look, show. When I was growing up, you're younger than me, but when I was growing up, there was an old man who was president of the United States. He looked really old. He was Dwight Eisenhower. He was 62 when he was elected president of the United States. He finished when he was 69 or 70. And, you know, he looked old. Uh, when I joined uh, Paul Weiss as a law firm in, 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 the, in 1973, the head of the firm, Judge Rifkin, came in and gave us a lecture to the, all the young people. And I said, boy, this is a doddering old guy. Well, I looked it up recently. He's two years younger than I am now. <laughs> That's funny. So what do you think's happened? Do we eat better? Well, I don't think people, we necessarily eat better. People are living longer because better medicine, uh, better. Uh, there's an understanding that eating healthy is better for you. Statins have obviously had some impact. Um, we've done a lot of, we've made a lot of progress in, uh, in on cancer related kinds of uh, uh, um, illnesses. But there's no doubt that people in Western society are living longer, except they pointed out today in the newspapers for the last two years that the longevity of the United States has gone down in part because COVID. But we believe the side, the COVID impact, generally people are living longer in Western society. And that's in part because better access to good and healthy food, understanding that exercise is good, recognition that that alcohol may not be a, a life preserver. And uh, 
And as generally, we've got really good medicines now. Uh, yeah, that's a good point about alcohol. Like less alcohol intake and, and fewer people smoking than 50 years ago probably helps a lot. Except in Europe where everybody's still smoking. But um, yeah, um, in the United States, you don't see people smoking as much. I remember when I used to fly on planes, long planes to, to commercial planes to Japan, everybody's smoking all the time on the plane. You know, now you would, you would, nobody allowed to smoke on a plane, of course, and you don't see as many smokers as you used to, but that's a big factor. And for a long time, people weren't willing to admit that smoking was harmful to you. Well, David Rubenstein, this is the third time you've been on the podcast and I really enjoyed this book, How to Invest. It, um, thank you. It, it really inspired me. I wish, I wish I was straight out of college again and I could, Start a distressed debt fund or anything or something, but I'm I'm too tired now. At, All at right, well 54. you're doing okay. I'm, you're you're doing fine. So uh, thank you very much for inviting me, and then thanks for letting me talk about these subjects. You, you obviously prepared well, and you know the subject well. Well, thanks very much, and and again, I enjoyed the book, and and good luck with it. All right, thank you. you can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.